Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Dry rot is, uh, of course, a very serious issue when it comes to timber and buildings. It can weaken the structure uh, um, of the building and uh, some of the key uh, framing of it and uh, lead to, obviously, very catastrophic consequences. We actually had this with uh, one of the timbers in our, our, our current building. The builder discovered that inside it had already begun to rot and uh, they were able to identify that and reorder another piece and, and replace it. And we're, of course, grateful that they were so careful to examine the wood because dry rot can be difficult to detect. It, it is caused by a fungus that often embeds itself deep under the surface of the timber, down in the, the crevices and the hidden parts of the, uh, of the wood, in areas where people don't normally inspect or aren't readily visible, but it grows and it spreads, and uh, really before you see the visible signs of the cracking and the crumbling, it's already done its work and the entire timber itself, perhaps even the entire structure of a building is ruined. It's really a vivid picture of the spiritual condition of so many people. They have the, uh, the appearance of a mighty timber, but beneath the surface there's something growing that is, that is undermining, that is literally decaying inside of them, weakening them day by day all invisible to the naked eye, all invisible to the people around them, and maybe even unnoticed in their own life. Some of the most important, you might say, spiritual, uh, structural pillars of churches and homes have been infected by this without any visible signs on the surface that something is going on. One day everything just crumbles because it was rotten from the inside. This is the kind of thing Jesus is warning us about in Matthew chapter 23. He is warning you about a kind of spirituality that is just that. It is a spirituality that on the outside might appear strong. It might appear structurally sound. It might appear in every way admirable, but it is rotting, decaying and putrid on the inside. It's a whole sermon, you remember, that we started to look at a few weeks ago. Jesus' final sermon on his final public day of ministry, really within just a few hours, he will be delivered over to the Romans to be crucified. But here at the end of three years of, of adamant uh, preaching and proclamation of the gospel, here he wants to punctuate with his final message, giving his final warning. And it's not a message about some uh, magnificent articulation of God or His characteristics. It's not a message about the, the, the mechanics, if you will, of what will take place on the cross and how you, by the mercy of God, might be justified. His message is about the dangers of a kind of religion that ensnares and entraps so many people that may very well be ensnaring you and trapping you today, a kind of worthless religion which from the inside is already rotting your soul. Outwardly, it may not appear to be a problem. 
Outwardly, it might be admired by some people. Outwardly, people might even be looking to build around you as some mighty cedar. But inside, the rot is already taking place. Inside, the weakness is there. And Jesus is warning you about this. He's warning you about this in your own life and he's warning you about this in the lives of other people. That there is a form of religion. There is a worthless religion whose primary concern is really not God and not pleasing God. Its primary concern is feeding its own ego, impressing other people, using religion as an instrument for pursuing its own fleshly appetites and desires and just covering all of it up in a, in a kind of, of hypocrisy. And his goal in this sermon is to awaken you and to warn you that this is the very thing that from the very beginning of time and to the very end of the ages will ensnare and trip up so many people. A kind of religious activity whose primary worship is to put on a show. And that's it. And not necessarily in a showy way, but, but to do it in such a way that it impresses other people even if it doesn't impress God. And Jesus, of course, has talked about this all the way through Matthew's gospel and all the way throughout his ministry, all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, his, his most uh, well-known sermon. He, he said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In Luke 16, he spoke about the Pharisees who always are seeking to justify themselves in the sight of men. At the heart of their religion, this was their motivation, was to to impress the person beside them, the people in front of them, the people around them that that may have a, a concern about their life. Their whole goal was not to be right with God as much as it was to be to be recognized by others and to be thought by them as someone who was devout, as someone who was moral, someone who was righteous. Jesus wants you to understand the treachery, the danger of that kind of worthless religion. And to that end, he, he's been, he, he gives this entire chapter over, this entire section to a series of warnings. They come in the form of, of some woes. He pronounces them over and over again. Woe uh, to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. But these woes articulate seven warnings about this kind of worthless religion that you need to be on guard against in your own heart and life. And he begins with perhaps the most severe and dire of these warnings, which is the fact that this kind of worthless religion, he says in verses 13 and 14, it actually hinders people from entering into heaven which is, is the worst consequence. It's the eternal consequence. It is the fact that you gave all of your time and energy or, or whatever it might be to doing these outward things throughout your life that you thought proved you to be a good person, a moral person. And then at the end of the age, you stand unable to enter into heaven. It was worthless 
in that regard. And he says it here. He says, woe to the scribes and Pharisees. They were the primary purveyors of this form of religion in Jesus' day. Woe to you because you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor do you allow those who would go in to enter. So they're not only, they're not only deceiving themselves But by the perpetuation of this kind of outward religion, they're actually duping other people and shutting the kingdom of heaven off to them. Not only that, he says in verse 15, that their form of worthless religion is converting people to more corruption. He says in verse 15, you travel across sea and land to make one single proselyte or one single convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. In other words, because everything is so, uh, so external, so, so focused on the outward mask, you actually create an environment where sin can accelerate. Sin can actually grow. You create the kind of environment that fosters this corruption that was just beginning in their hearts. So they become twice as much a son of hell. And then in verse 16, he goes on to start talking about a system of oaths that they had constructed that were nothing more than a mask to, to, to cover up their deception. It was all designed. It was a, a, a mask of deception that was designed to look like devotion because they had these oaths that they would take that would swear to this and swear to that. But the whole design of them was simply to give them a justification for lying, for deceiving, and making it sound religious. It was just really one, one aspect of their entire system that was all designed to cover up and to justify their sin. In this situation, it was a two-tiered oath system where they had certain oaths that they were required to keep and certain that they were not required to keep, basically, basically justifying their lies from the very beginning. And then in verse 23, he gives a fourth warning of this kind of worthless religion where he talks about how it ignores important truths. He says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So, so, so one of the, uh, the, the aspects of this worthless religion was that it focused your, your spiritual life and your attention on what are essentially trivial matters. Matters that are making no real impact on your heart, but the, the most important things to God, the issues of justice and the issues of mercy and the issues of faithfulness are nowhere in your view. You're not thinking about them. You're not bothered by them. They're not manifesting themselves in your life. You're not growing in mercy. You're not growing in faithfulness. You're not growing in justice. You're stagnating and you are rotting from the inside out. Now that prepares us for what we come to today, which are some more of these woes and some more of these warnings about this kind of worthless religion because he tells us in verse 25 and 26, uh, uh, another aspect of this worthless religion is that it actually promotes personal impurity. It promotes personal 
in purity. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Now, now this is one of Jesus' more simple and yet more memorable images of the revolting and vile nature of this kind of worthless religion. It's like a cup, he says, that inside is coated with gook and grime. That people are trying to serve up a form of religion to you out of this kind of a cup. They want you to drink their form of righteousness with all of that internal contamination. It's a vivid image. A vivid image of a, a religion that is convinced that the only important thing, the only thing that really matters is all of this external activity. All this external stuff that you may busy yourself with as if that is, is the most important thing in your spiritual life. But we intuitively know in so many other areas of life that that's, that's not the way it works. When it comes to dishes, we certainly understand that cleaning the inside of the cup is way more important than cleaning the outside of the cup. The outside of a cup, we might set it in all kinds of spilled and filthy situations down in the dirt or whatever it might be. That doesn't bother us. But it's when the inside becomes filthy that we intuitively know how detrimental that could be to our health. Well, when it comes to religion, for some people, for, for some reason, people don't, don't get that. They become so focused on the outside Cleaning the outside, the, having the right rules and having the right traditions and having the right systems and, and all of that stuff, rather than their heart and their mind and their thoughts. But the principle, Jesus says, is the same. doesn't matter if it's soup bowls or spiritual, your spiritual condition. It's all the same. The inside is by far the part that needs the most attention. And it is the part that if anything is going to be cleansed, it's the part that needs to be cleansed. The inside needs to be your focus. In fact, Jesus says it in verse 26, first clean the inside of the cup and plate that the outside may also be clean. So in other words, if you can deal with the inside, the outside will take care of itself. There, there is, in other words, in a spiritual sense, there's a transformative power that follows an internal cleansing of your heart. Now, the reverse is not true. It's never true. You can devote yourself to all kinds of efforts on the outside, cleaning up the outside, getting your life right. You can devote yourself to all that stuff and following rules and jumping through sort of hoops and doing all the stuff that you think everyone expects you to do. You can do all of that stuff and it never affect you on the inside. People have this mistake all the time. I talk to people and I begin to tell them about how they need God in their life. And the answer that comes back so many times, well, I'm, you know, pastor, I'm trying. I, I, I'm trying to get my life cleaned up. I'm, I want to get back into church. I want to get all this stuff as if that's going to make a hill of beans. It doesn't work that way. 
You don't clean the inside by first cleaning the outside. You don't clean the inside by getting all of that stuff uh, working in the right order and then somehow, some way, it just seeps inside of you. Jesus is saying that's not the way it works. You will never, you will never cleanse your heart and your mind and your conscience by cleaning up the outside. That's what the Pharisees thought. That is, that is a pathway to worthless religion. Later on, Paul will say something very similar to the believers in Colossae. In Colossians chapter 2, he'll ask them a question. Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all referring to things which he says perish. These are according to human precepts and human teachings. They indeed have the appearance, he says, of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value in stopping fleshly indulgence. No value. You can clean up all the outside stuff, you can be recognized by society and by the people in your life as a moral person, but they don't do anything to clean up the inside. The rules, the regulations cannot touch the real problem of the filth that's in your heart. Besides, Paul says that stuff that you're avoiding and you're staying away from, you're not touching, you're not tasting, you're not handling, all that stuff, it's just passing away. If it's food that you're eating, you, you eat it, you consume it, it goes into your digestive tract and it's eliminated a short time after and it's done with. But the thing that remains is your anger and your bitterness and your unforgiveness and your greed and your pride and your lust. See, those things They're still there long after you ate and long after you touched or whatever it might be because those regulations can't touch that. They they, they can't deal with that. You can eat all the right things. You can avoid all the right things. You can have a, a very strict spiritual schedule. You can follow all the right sort of activities and observe all the right traditions, give all the money that you're supposed to give and tithe and all that stuff and it never, ever transform your heart. That's the danger of this kind of worthless religion. It actually focuses your attention and your energy and your efforts so that you're so busy thinking about how you might fit the expectations of everyone around you. You're so busy congratulating yourself about all the things that you might have accomplished. You never have the time to sit down and really ponder what's in your heart. You never have time to really focus on what's important. This has been the problem for centuries. People have been drawn into these sort of extreme pursuits of externalism for centuries, all the way back in the early church, Athanasius tells us the, 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 the father of the monastic movement, the one who started monasteries, was a guy named Anthony who went out into the desert and treated himself severely. He actually, we're told, for decades wouldn't even change his clothes or bathe. I don't know what that has to do with anything. But that was his way of proving his severe treatment of his body, his asceticism, and somehow convinced people around him that he was more spiritual than everyone else. 
He'd be outdone years later in the 5th century by Simon Stylites, who climbed up a column and for 36 years sat on the top of that column and never came down. As if somehow this is some demonstration of your spiritual superiority over everyone and people praised him and gawked at him and, and celebrated his, uh, his devotion. But you can do all of that stuff. You can have all of that kind of discipline and guess what? It never touches your heart. You can be on the top of that pole. You can be behind the walls of some monastery. You can be right here in the seat of a church and you can be just as filthy as the person outside. You can, heart, yeah, you can have a heart that is just as dominated by the appetites for pleasure, by the self-boasting and pride, by the celebration of your own accomplishments. You can have the same kind of filth in your heart as what dominates the world outside. And guess what? God is not impressed. Sure, other people may be impressed, but God is not impressed. That means nothing to him. You may have a reputation with other people, but it is nothing to him. This is the big ripoff of this kind of worthless religion. It focuses you on all the wrong things, all the wrong voices, all the wrong efforts, all the wrong whatever it might be that consumes your mind. It demands your attention on all that stuff, but it never really delivers what you need, what you need which is a cleansed heart. That's what you need. You need somebody to come along and to wipe away all the filth that is lining the inside of your cup. You say, well, how can I do that? I mean, if, I mean, if, if it doesn't come by doing all these things that I see everybody around me doing and, and uh, you know, following all these rules and and doing all that, well, how in the world am I ever going to cleanse the inside? I mean, I just, it's, I don't know how to respond to that. Well, the way it happens is the same way it's happened for every saint through the ages. It really begins, as David says in Psalm 51.10 with a prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God. That's where it starts. It starts with a prayer to God. Not with other people or anything about it. It starts with a prayer to God. God, I know what the inside looks like. I, I've stopped and I've pondered and I've recognized. And I know the, the unforgiveness that's there and I know the self-centeredness that's there and I know the lust and the pride that's there. I know. And there's nothing I can do about it. Would you create in me a clean heart? You know, this is the promise that God gave to Israel when he gave them originally a law, the law of Moses, that for hundreds of years, it governed their external activity, and they were at various times very devoted to it, but at the end of the day, it never removed the real problem of their heart. In fact, it just demonstrated more and more their inability to please God, their inability to even follow the outward regulations, it demonstrated more and more just how corrupt they were until 
God introduces what he calls a new covenant. He he says it's a new covenant, not like the old covenant, which I gave to your fathers, a covenant which he says they broke. I'm going to give you a new covenant. And the way he describes this new covenant in Ezekiel 36 is this way. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all of your uncleanness. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So he says, this is the work that I will do. I will take out of you what has, has corrupted you, a heart that is hardened, a heart that is dead, a heart that is stony. And I'm going give to you, give you a new heart, a heart that is tender, a heart that is moldable, a heart that is alive. I'm going to give you a new heart. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to be cleansed. You're going to be cleansed on the inside. And when you clean the inside, the outside begins to be transformed. There's a transformative power when you lay aside worthless religion and when you understand what God's really after. And finally, you surrender. You surrender. You say, God, all this external stuff, I tried it, it doesn't work. I surrender, I'm just, I'm just unclean, I'm unclean. Would you cleanse me? There's another warning that Jesus gives here about this kind of worthless religion. It's a, a sixth warning in verse 27 through 28 about the kind of religion that had overtaken Judaism in his day. He said it hides hypocrisy behind morality. Very similar to what he said in verse 25 and 26. But this time, he pronounces his woe to the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So also you outwardly appear righteous to other people, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now he he calls them like these concealed tombs, these these graves, which outwardly people may dress up, they may put all kinds of roses and flowers around them, or in our day we might stack up marble and put beautiful words on them, we might put borders around them and fill them with all kinds of, of uh, beautiful uh, rock and maybe even build a mausoleum over it. We do all these things to beautify what is essentially a pit of decay. That's what a tomb is. It is a pit of decay. And in some sense, we detract from that by all the stuff that we put around it, but you can't really, de- de- you can't really change the reality of what a grave is. It is a place full of deadness. It is a place full of decay. And Jesus is telling these guys, you can dress up your life You can put on uh, uh, any kind of claim to religion and any kind of claim to morality, but all you're really doing is just dressing up what is the reality of what is inside of you, which is hypocrisy and lawlessness. You're just a whitewashed tomb. Now, this was particularly dangerous in Israel's day because there was a law Uh, that actually said that if you touched a grave, that somehow, someway you became 
defiled. We, we still do that in, in at least when I was growing up. You're always taught not to walk on graves, you know, always sort of be respectful. We had that sense that there's something sacred there. And in the Old Testament, people were actually uh, mandated not to touch graves. Number six, uh, 1916, anyone who is in the open field and touches someone who's been slain with a sword or died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. So, so, so touching a grave actually made you unfit for worship, unfit for the temple, unfit for offering sacrifices. It made you unclean for seven days. And so because of this, Israel had a tendency, particularly during seasons when there were lots of pilgrims on the road, for example, the Passover season, which was just a couple of days after Matthew 23, they would go out in the weeks before these Passover seasons and they would whitewash all of the tombs. They would paint them with this glistening white paint so that people who were making their way to Jerusalem were absolutely sure where the tombs were and they wouldn't inadvertently uh, walk over them or touch them in some way. And so even as Jesus is saying this, the very people who are listening had spent so many hours in the weeks before out there painting and whitewashing all of the tombs that are on the hills and the cliffs all around Jerusalem. And so Jesus is saying, uh, while these tombs are glistening, if you will, in the background, Jesus is telling them, you're just like those tombs that you just painted. You're always painting up the outside of your life. You're always putting on some sort of form. You're always putting on some sort of outward display Uh, to maybe impress other people, but it doesn't change what you are on the inside, not in the least. Not in the least. In fact, because you are what you are, you might actually be bringing people in contact with your uh, your own spiritual deadness. You might actually be a defiling influence in their life. Jesus says it over in, in Luke when Luke is recording the same sermon Luke tells us that Jesus also said on that same occasion that some people walk over you as a tomb and are unaware, meaning that they wind up getting defiled. They come in contact with you. You might put on an impressive front to begin with. You might present yourself as some upstanding person, but inside, inside, you're just looking for the next opportunity to indulge your flesh. You draw them in. You convince them of your form of morality and your form of religion. And then you lead them down the pathway of fleshly indulgence, just like you've always done for yourself. And you wind up defiling them by contact with you. Jesus is like, this is, this is worthless. You understand? It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't do anything for the people around you. It isn't what God is pleased with. It's not what God's seeking for. It's ruinous. Ruinous to you and ruinous to the people around you. It eventually, it eventually creates a, a facade that is difficult to penetrate. A conscience which has been so so saturated with religion and the Bible and verses and songs and activities that it has buried itself under a thick crust of hard-heartedness and now is almost impossible to penetrate with the truth. 
This is what J.C. Ryle says. This form of religion, he says, brings up by degrees a thick crust of insensibility over the whole inner person. None seems to become so desperately hard as those who are continually repeating holy words and handling holy things while their hearts are running after sin and the world. End quote. Like a rotting apple that's that's only concerned with polishing its skin. But is useless. Useless to nourish. Useless to satisfy anybody. This is the nature of this kind of religion. J.C. Ryle calls it a painted fire. It doesn't warm. It doesn't cook anything. It's just for display. Jesus says you've got to beware of this. This kind of worthless religion. He tells the scribes and Pharisees over in Luke 16, God knows your heart. God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God, he says. Sure, you've impressed people. You've shown up. Come to church. You sang the songs. You listened to the sermons. You've impressed people. But you haven't impressed God. And that's really all that matters. You haven't impressed God. Because he still sees inside the cup. And he still sees under the dirt. And he still knows what's in your heart. And he knows that the only thing that you need is what only he can give. And he knows that you haven't asked for it. He knows that you're satisfied just impressing other people, but he knows that you haven't humbled yourself and confessed the filthiness inside and pleaded with God to cleanse you. But that's what you need. That's what you need. Not all this worthless religion. What you need is what God promises he he gives to every person who calls on him, to the person who calls on him in truth, God saves He saves, He cleanses, He restores, He gives you a new heart. He puts a spirit within you, His very spirit, so that you have a new life within. New life. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the night, a religious stalwart, respected by everybody in the community. He came to Jesus because he wanted to know after all these years of all this religion, what's the real answer? And Jesus tells him, unless you're born of water and spirit, you will not enter into heaven. What does he mean? He means water, that means cleansing, and spirit, that means life. Unless God cleanses your heart and gives you his spirit, all your religion will never save you. It'll never save you. In fact, all it'll do is it'll leave you rotting. Rotting. And you may not notice it for a while. You might impress other people with the structure that you've built for a while, but the dry rot, it eventually causes everything to crumble. And it will implode. One more woe that Jesus has to give to you. And uh, we don't have time for it, unfortunately, today. We'll get to it next time. Father, this, uh, 
This is so true. The truth, we understand why you preached it on your final day. Because so many people are duped. So many people are deceived. So many people here today have come with only their lips and their outward life, but their hearts have never been touched by you. We pray for them. I pray for them today. Would they hear your warning? Would they see the filthiness within? And would they ask you to cleanse them? That's our prayer, Lord. That is your heart. And we pray that you would do it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.